0: Welcome back, listeners, to the next episode, episode 42 of our series that we're calling That's So Second Millennium. And I'm Bill Schmidt. I'm a journalist and uh, follower of the patterns of uh, interaction between science and religion. And I'm uh, sitting here uh, learning uh, as you are. Uh, from um, the insights of a a scientist, a a PhD geologist, my friend, Dr. Paul Giesing, uh, who's uh, interested very much in the details of science and the details of uh, religion and philosophy uh, and uh, how everything kind of interacts. And we're looking uh, now in 2019 to advance our podcast trajectory, Even beyond that uh, area of occasional uh, collision between religion and science and into more of the areas of uh, convergence and uh, society's obvious need for those areas of convergence where we can understand ourselves better and that gets into the whole world of psychology. Uh, Paul was uh, introducing us to that area of exploration in our last podcast, welcome back, Paul, and uh, uh, please uh, carry on with that um, kind of uh, teaser into uh, the upcoming episodes.
1: Well, thanks, Bill. I, I, I always cringe sometimes when you're like, you know, and sharing insights of, wow, I'm just kind of Joe Blow.
0: <laughs> I feel that way. I'm, I know I enjoy learning uh, in the conversation. <laughs>
1: um, I just happen to have read a lot of obscure books. Um, well, not even so much books necessarily as articles and extracts and pieces of this and that. Just enough to be dangerous. Um, so there was a point that we were talking about. Uh, I, I originally wanted to wedge it in uh, where we're talking about uh, religion and faith and the convergence of psychology and the issues about uh, consciousness and free will, that whole, that whole nest of things. One final point I did want to mention about that, um, this tension between and of course, because we're so myopic in the modern world, you know, everything started with Descartes. No, it didn't. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, it didn't. No, no, it really, really, really didn't. Um, and I am not, again, I'm not an expert on it, but there's the whole, there's a tension in the Western philosophic tradition if you, you know, even read the modern, the mild amount of it that I have about the soul. Um, so you'll see Aristotle and Thomas say things like, the soul is the form of the body, which is kind of a, always has rocked me back on my heels, really? I mean, is that kind of all? Um, And and that's in tension with, you know, quote, Cartesian dualism, um, but really, you know, so far as I know, platonic dualism, where the soul is really this kind of thing on its own and it's attached to the body somehow. And, you know, the reading that I've done of uh, Thomas has, you know, I I think there is a tension within his own writing, the degree to which, you know, I mean, have we really carried this project all the way through? Have we really, really thought through and hammered out all the difficulties of considering the soul, the form of the body? And Mm. what would that even mean? Because, I mean, so what's what's form? And, And we talked about this way back when. So this is I mean mm-hmm. of course this is metaphysics matter and form and it's a project that I really think well I mean at, at this point it's a project I want to read about who has done what um before I start speculating whether it whether there's anything for me to contribute to it um uh-huh. but but you know that that whole you know the matter and form hylomorphism um gosh it fits it fits quantum physics better than it fit anything in the classical world um That's, I mean, that, that fascinates me. And, and how has that, how has somebody seen that some dozens of somebody's have seen that and written something about it. And I need to, and I need to get educate myself. I need to get far enough through the road to reality to have some real idea as to what I'm dealing with, with quantum entities before I start waiting in on that in any serious sort of way. Um, right. Before I start reading about that in any serious sort of way. Um, so, but so form okay. So form for an electron, right? It's you know, it can be no larger than this, and it has this behavior called spin, and it has you know that spin is going to be one of a certain set of values. Um, it's going to be spin one half, and it's going to have x charge, which means it's going to interact in y ways with protons and in z ways with other electrons, and so on. So, I mean, you and you can and and these are. Amazingly mathematically precise statements we can say about the form that this bit of mass energy or matter is, uh, is occupying at the moment. So that's great. Okay, so that's, that's form for a a quantum particle, uh, at, at least in some sense. With a lot of mathematical, you know, truth behind that that I'm only dimly aware even exists. Uh, and then, but so, so, okay, so let's upgrade it a little bit. Okay, what's the form of this hunk of granite? I don't have one you know, ready to hand, but, you know, I, I can sort of picture one. It's pretty easy at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so the form of a piece of granite. Well, as a matter of fact, um, if you're a petrologist, even that has a tolerably precise mathematical definition because you add up, if you can, and you can, and it's not a dreadfully difficult experiment to do this. You rig up your x-ray diffractometer. You grind the granite to powder. You cal- you find out how much quartz you estimate, you estimate how much quartz and how much plagioclase feldspar and how much potassium feldspar in it. Um, you find out the ratios of one to the other, and that plots you on this precisely defined figure. And if it's in the granite field, it's granite. Okay. And of right. course, those minerals themselves are, you know, arrangements, imperfect but uh, remarkably close to perfect arrangements of atoms in a certain lattice, you know, in a geometric pattern that extends through space. So you have this kind of composite definition that serves as the form of granite, and the form of this particular piece of granite, you know, with the grain boundaries in just such locations. Um, and there's a certain amount of surface tension energy, and there's a, there's a whole wealth of stuff that you could talk about in, the, in that in that context. What on earth would it mean to say, well, you know, so what's the form of a human body? Well, it has you know, what its essentials, you know, the essence of it, the aspects of the form that cause you to classify it in genus Homo species sapiens, um, the sort mm-hmm. of crudely, you know, mash together the Aristotelian and the, uh, Linnan hierarchies, um, you know, are the thing, you know, what, what's essential to it? Well, I mean, it's what's essential to it is the cells all have yea many chromosomes with genes in you know these locations or at least enough genes in these locations that you can you know you can reproduce which is an extremely extremely large number of them, a large proportion of them, all need to be right, right here. Right. And then of course the epigenetic, you know, how it has all multiplied itself out into a human being. Okay, but so so where so what does the soul being a form of the body mean there? So all this stuff we yeah. associate with the soul, consciousness and free will is that an emergent phenomenon of how this matter is arranged? Isn't that what form means? So that's something, you know, so, so, um, it may be kind of ambitious to even try to tangle with it this year, but, uh, at some point this year, or at some point in this podcast, I really want to try to do an episode or six. Or <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> however many, All right. um, I mean, I think that's a fascinating question and I don't know who has tried to answer it. I mean, and that's, that's of course the fundamental truth of the modern world. So there's a saying in physics like anything that's not forbidden is mandatory i e there are enough uh-huh. particles in the universe that if you know if the rules don't forbid it, no matter how rare it needs to be, it's going to happen um, uh-huh. just because there's so many particles going undergoing interactions in such a short length of time or said you know in every second and even in a laboratory setting. Um, so likewise, um, you know, the fundamental truth of the modern world about information is that someone if you have a question, someone's written something about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Someone somewhere has written something about it, and the only question is finding it, um, which is easier than it used to be, but still not uh you know, Google doesn't actually present you the entire contents of human knowledge, far from it.
0: Amen. There's a lot of people that make the error of thinking that Google and even just the first page of results from a search oh, in yeah. Google that's the whole answer you need yeah that's a mistake yeah.
1: and if you're really unlucky richard dawkins has written it
0: <laughs> not impugning his scholarship but uh, uh i agree
1: i mean if you, and of course that's 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 a you know that's only true in the sense of if it's about religion and science or religion in the modern world or, or something like that. You're, you're, you'd be unlucky right. in the circumstance to <laughs> wind up with something from Dawkins or Pinker or somebody like that. On the other hand, of course, if you're in their wheelhouse and they're, you know, in evolutionary biology or, you know, neuroscience of linguistics or something like that, actually that's exactly what you want. That would be, that would be a great, uh, you know, the dice would have rolled well for you. Um, that's right. Yeah. So, so anyway, so, so that, that was a pending Issue that, uh, I wanted to get out there. Um a fascinating arc worth, uh, considering, I think also. So we talked some about the history of geology as a discipline, obviously because I am a geologist, and inevitably we also, we actually also talked about the history of physics as a discipline as well. Right. So, and so this is, this is a somewhat dangerous game, but you know, what's what the podcast for without, uh, wild speculation, uh, as if we haven't done enough <laughs> of that already. But <laughs> <trying to compare. laughs> you know, for my for my own corner of the asylum, and I I sus, I'm pretty sure there are psychologists who would agree with this. Like, there are probably not a small number that would agree with this. I think, um, based on what I have read, um, psychology is still in what you might call an Acunian Thomas Thomas Can Thomas Kuhn, or the structure of scientific revol, uh, revolutions, resolutions mm-hmm. revolutions um, in a pre-paradigm situation. Yeah. There isn't actually a working master paradigm yet. So geology was in a pre parad I would argue geology was in a pre parad And they're they're bad candidates. So chemistry had a bad candidate. Um, and alchemy is too vague a term to even to even call a scientific paradigm at all. But there was like oh, the yeah. phlogiston theory or phlogiston or it doesn't you know it's, it's a dead word. I don't know why it matters how I pronounce it, but you know it's just just well enough for you to be able to spell it right. F- P-H, it's not F, it's P-H-O-L-I-G-I-S-P-O-N, I think. So that's the whole dead, terrible concept of why things burn, which is a, actually a fairly fundamental chemical concept, because um, you can extend it to things like things rusting and, and a whole bunch of processes that take place in this weird, caustic, oxygen-rich atmosphere that we live in on Earth. I mean, Bill, are you aware that the atmosphere of planet Earth is so, you know, so uh, toxic the things actually catch fire in it. Interesting, yeah. right? That no, doesn't uh-huh. really happen on other planets. The other planets are their surface and their atmosphere is a lot closer to chemical equilibrium than ours is. Interesting. <laughs> uh-huh. Stuff does not catch fire. Stuff does not rust on the surface of, you know, Venus. It's hot. It's unpleasant. You know, obviously for our purposes, but uh, it's actually a lot closer to chemical equilibrium than ours. You can't set something on fire in the atmosphere or in the atmosphere of Venus. Um, but anyway, so I've gone off on that, but you know, that's, that's why phlogiston, you know, I, I, I think it's close enough to a paradigm and it was terrible. It was the wrong idea. It was the idea that things burn, they're giving, they, because they already have this phlogiston stuff and they're just giving it up. Um, whereas in reality what's happening is they have stuff, perfectly ordinary, you know, reasonable stuff that again, on Venus would not go anywhere, but because it's in contact with this oxygen stuff this horrific right. Right. it's the second most reactive element the second most electronegative element on the periodic table um mm. and it's rough it's rough it's really rough mm-hmm. stuff with carbon carbon bonds it just it just rips it apart you give it a little bit <laughs> a little bit of an elevated temperature it overcomes the reactive barrier and it just sets the stuff on fire it's terrible uh uh-huh. um, uh-huh. but that's you know so that was a, the phlogiston was a terrible paradigm i mean it was it was the best people could do and you know Once you've got the idea, you can you can hang enough bells and whistles on me, kind of like, you know, Ptolemy and his epicycles, right? You just, okay, well, the planet is orbiting the sun in a circle because circles are perfect and it has to be a circle. Curse it. Um, But the planet's not Mm -hmm. exactly where I expected it to be. Well, add another circle. (laughs) Put it on Uh, another circle. Um, And you can get a long way. You know, adding circles to circles, but eventually you have to add circles to circles, and by the time you've got a telescope and, and, you know, accurate angle measuring equipment, the number of circles becomes ruinous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Likewise, you know, so geology labored along with some terrible pre-paradigms. I would say perhaps the most notable, latest, most notorious of which maybe was the geosyncline theory. But somehow at the fringes of continents, you just sort of magically make mountains because there's a big pile of sediment and somehow it melts at the bottom and overturns and turns into a mountain range. And just don't ask too many questions. Just just don't ask too many of these why questions or or physical how questions, Um, which is hilarious because of course the, the, the initial objection to continental drift is that it was physically impossible. I'm like, you know, you look back at that period in America I mean, and that, that was to my understanding, that was an American and British idea in particular. I don't know that continental geologists and certainly southern hemisphere geologists really cotton to that geosyncline idea that I've, you know, given you the, the nickel sketch of um mm-hmm. all that well. But in any case, it it it's 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 kinda dumb. It it doesn't really work, physically speaking, the, the geosyncline hypothesis that you know Continents are where they've always been, and they're just mountain ranges keep coming and going. Plate tectonics just has better answers to those questions. Right. Mountains right. are at the edges of continents because plates, you know, because ocean plates come and go, ocean plates subduct, and, you know, at the edges of continents is where collisions happen. And for that matter, where, you know, volcanoes like the Andes, so the mountain, mountain ranges like the Andes are built out of volcanoes at the fringes of continents. It's just a better... It has a lot more explanatory power. And once you've had the idea, you find that it leads you to other ideas and you go and check them and you're like, by God, it's exactly that way. Oh, look, there's this sloping surface of earthquakes descending into the earth. That's really weird. That's really weird. And it's attached to an ocean trench. And so is this one. And so is this one. That's really strange. Why is that the case? Well, it turns out we have an answer to that now. So that's what, I mean, that's what makes a good paradigm as opposed to a bad paradigm that you just have to keep repairing. Until it collapses under the weight of all its repairs, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's part of it, and of course there's a sociological phenomenon going along with it um, as well. So psychology, I think, is not is in a pre-paradigm state. Hmm, that's yeah. my suspicion. There's there's good ideas floating around that are probably going to get taken into. And of course, a, a field can have more than one paradigm, like physics. Physics has more than one paradigm. You know, mm-hmm. it used to be, it sort of right. had the classical paradigm, and that was a single paradigm. And then the dad blame 20th century came along. And we're still, we're still trying to figure out how relativity and quantum physics work together. Right. But, nevertheless, um those paradigms do work. I mean, they, they're, 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 their interface is muddy and messy, but I mean, it, it would be ridiculous to say that physics is in a pre-paradigm state. There's probably some people to try to make a point that would you know that would make a statement like that intending to sort of shock the listener. Um, but it's I don't think that's 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 a useful thing to say, personally. Um yeah. so so um, so psychology though, I you know, what what's it gone through? You know, it's gone through the there there, you know, there's some pre work, you know, there's there's work I mean of course there's all the philosophical uh, speculation and thinking that's gone on for millennia. Um, And there's, you know, the beginnings in the 19th century of different kinds of ideas. And then the early 20th century, of course there's Freud and um, shoot. I keep forgetting his name. Jung. um, And they, and those are, those are, those are pre-paradigm ideas. Those are pre-paradigm thinkers. Those are like our friend, um, not Wegener with continental drift, but uh, but just Wegener from back in the 18th century with his whole you know his whole geonosy system. That was a pre-paradigm system. It didn't actually work. Um, it was an interesting set of ideas, and it provoked a lot of thought and study. Um, and likewise, you know, Freud and Jung and Adler provoked a lot of thought and study. You know, and then there is behaviorism. Um, behavior, you know, right. so I was. Another, another, you know, I mentioned Radio Lab last time, another series that they've talked about recently of, of great interest, you know, as, as a Catholic trying to, you know, get, get an idea as to what uh, progressives across the aisle are actually thinking about. So they have this uh, series that, you know, the, the intellectual burden of the series is that we've proved that, uh, you know, people with homosexual inclinations can't possibly change and any attempt to actually change them is evil and violent and awful. And they describe some evil and violent and awful things uh, of various kinds were done to people in the 60s um, Mm. with the behaviorist, you know, sort of. Well, so what's behaviorism? Um, So far as I understand it, you know, the fundamental idea of behaviorism is, well, we don't know anything about this messy internal thought stuff. That's just subjective hogwash nonsense. So we'll just, you know, focus our attention on the externals and we'll ram people. I mean, that's basically what it is. We're going to ram people into compliance to try to fix their mental problems. Um, you know, so like the Pavlovian dog response. Right. Right. I this, you know, I, I can control the externals. I can control handing the dog the food. I can control ringing the bell. And if I associate the bell and the food externally and ram that, you know, pairing into the dog, uh, the dog will salivate when I ring the bell, even if I don't give him the food. And likewise, right. they were they were discussing both positive and negative, sort of attempting to ram homosexual, you know, men into different behaviors. So rather than, you know, indulging in sexual behavior on the stimulus of other men, we're going to either give you the negative stimulus of, I mean, like, <laughs> they were really big fans of electric shocks back in the mid-20th century. Yeah. Which is sort of like, okay, okay, okay. I mean... Yeah, uh, I mean, that that's certainly my, my touchy-feely 90s, inner uh, 90s guy self. Like, you know, yeah, we're, we, we think of that as, oh, that's torturous. One. It could be, if, if it was really going to work, it might be worth it. Um, an electric shock is not the end of the world, but on the other hand, that is pretty crude. That is a pretty is, crude attempting to sort of ram the human being into external compliance with a norm. I'm not wow. surprised that didn't work. Uh I'm not going to draw the conclusion that nothing could possibly work because this particular essay at it by really crude pre-paradigm science didn't work. Is uh I'm, I'm not I'm not sold. I'm not sold on that argument. I um, agree. There's a to, lot to of other fair, stuff. There, there's a lot of other stuff to consider before we really can you know could say that we understand the question. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So and of yeah, course the other thing. I'm,
0: I was going to say that uh, uh, be, the uh, behavioral, uh, uh, behavioral therapy, as I understand it, has uh, fortunately uh, progressed uh, uh, somewhat uh, substantially beyond um, the uh, Pavlovian approaches and the, oh, yeah. uh, and the electroshock uh, techniques and all of that. Uh, yeah. but, uh, but I agree with you that uh, that's no reason to declare it the, uh,
1: the be-all and end-all paradigm right. or to stop right. asking questions about it. Yeah, but but I mean I would I would I would propose I suspect and you know would be interested to hear a psychologist much more educated you know someone someone knowledgeable about the history of their field uh, I would love to hear their take on this but I sus I would say that 50s and 60s era behaviorism is still would definitely still qualify as pre paradigm science right. Uh, but it's, you know, it, again, it was an interesting set of ideas and it actually had some quantitative um, research behind it. that you know, some, some actual checking of how the results went. Um, actually, as a follow up to the anecdote, I just, you know, there, there was a really sinister aspect. There's an even more sinister. What, what was already, I already described to you as sinister enough. What was even more sinister is there was, they were interviewing a guy who invented the, quote, playboy therapy which was to yeah, try to do it. positive behaviorist sort of ramming you into compliance by attempting to basically associate masturbation and, you know, viewing of, uh, female nudity. Like, and, and you just look at that now. And I just like, I just feel my face like, you know, dropping mm. into this expression of abject horror. They mm. deliberately wanted to create sex addiction. Awesome. That's a great yeah. idea. Oh, gosh. <laughs> really? Yeah. We're still living, we're still living with, uh, the, 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 uh, with people, you know, take, taking that exact, uh, approach to life. There's no right. sort of people taking that exact approach to life. Um, it's it's, it was just kind of, it was just chilling to listen to that. Really chilling. <laughs> um, yeah but the, by, you know and there there are lots of better ideas there are lots of better ideas in psychology going going around and there's 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 too, there's almost too many of them to keep track of and i I have not attempted to do a census of them um but and and we could be very close to putting together enough of them to get them in, to enough of them to sort of cognitively interlock to the point of being able to call it a paradigm I don't
0: interesting uh-huh
1: I don't think we're there yeah. yet right. um I don't think we'll get there without I, mean, I don't know we'll get there at all unless we you know, as we were talking about last time, give adequate credit to the millennia of thought that already <laughs> the millennia of writings that have already been, and especially in the West rather than being you know as it were sort of temporally solipsistic about our own culture um mm-hmm. you know to actually take you know greek thought you know pre-socratic hellenistic you know the whole gamut of it and even shudder you know medieval thought about the subject um, yeah. and, and actually because there were a lot of thinkers there's a lot of systematic thought done about that and it was actually oh, yeah. assembled together into a logical system just just watching that happen is probably educational um, to oh, say absolutely. nothing of you know yeah. the Thomistic lesson on you know taking your intellectual opponents seriously digesting their thought and presenting it in the most favorable view to their own position. Um, yes. that's, that's an exercise we need more of, you know, but that, that's an exercise that every scientist could afford to, to have as a significant part of his training or her training. And
0: it was also, it was also the, uh, exercise, uh, that, uh, Aquinas, uh, uh used in uh, in his religious uh, sp- uh, theological yeah, exploration.
1: Yeah, he used it in his philosophy, he used it in his theological work. I mean he, he always saw himself as doing theological work I guess, but um nearly all. Uh, people, right. The, the The vast majority of the time. Um That's
0: that's right. But the whole idea of taking one opponent's uh, one's opponent's uh views uh seriously yeah. and um and responding to them. Yeah.
1: And that you know there there was a remark, and I actually uh, it came up in our discussion uh, with with my uh, professor uh, Jill Pasteris. Uh She was you know she mentioned this and it reminded me of a remark from uh, Fulton Sheen back in the 50s in in his book *Piece of Soul*, which I read a number of times when I was uh, a teenager in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, but his his remark, and of course he's in the 50s where you know behaviorism is just coming into existence, and he's really kind of re- no. responding to Freud and to a lesser extent, maybe Jung and Adler, but, you know, primarily Freud. Um, his idea that psychology is actually Freud and post-Freudian, you know, psychoanalysis. Um, that psychologists are kind of furtively recycling Christian ideas and passing them off as new. You know, that, that the 19th century had put a whole bunch of Christian truths in the wastebasket and that the 20th century was, you know, there were people in the 20th century engaged in furtively slipping them out of the wastebasket, smoothing them back out, presenting them as their own discoveries, uh, which is, you know, not by any stretch, all of what was going on, but there, and, you know, whether that was being done consciously or not, to what extent that was actually being done consciously is, is another question. But, but yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just way too much thought in um, medieval scholarship to mine to be, to responsibly carry on the way that we do, the way that so many of us do, living in complete ignorance of it you know, and going about intellectual uh, work without that. Um, So that's, yeah. So to sort of give the other side credit, um, you know, there, there was a a bunch of things that I wanted to touch, touch on and, and just to sort of mention them at this point, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's a convergence between, you know, religious, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have modern psychology, and we wouldn't have um, we wouldn't have the self help movement um, if if the church were actually if first of all the reality had ever been that we had all the all the answers to the pain of human existence you know actually actively being taught even even the early church mm-hmm. did not have all of that I mean it had a lot and it had answers that people wanted and that's why it spread. And that's why it spread in spite of persecution and you know but but even that wasn't complete. and still more was it not com- what's really not complete is the sort of inherited institutionalized church, um, mm-hmm. the bad side of the um, of the medieval church, the the medieval experiment, and then the after the Reformation, the sort of you know inherited conservatism. Of of both Protestant and Catholic churches that mm-hmm. you know, lost, you know, it's fo- The focus drifted under you know the influence of a whole bunch of factors. Some of them being institutionalism, and some of them being, um, you know, the polemics of of the Reformation and even um, of the schism before that, of, of other theological controversies. Uh, we started to focus on a certain subset of things and not the whole picture. Um, and we and we never had you know and that's you know while Jesus is the single biggest part of the answer I mean that, this is the obviously the mindset I'm committed to um, even though I believe you know Jesus of Nazareth is the single biggest part of the, you know his his historic life and his historic teaching is the single biggest part of the answer that doesn't mean we're done thinking about it and exactly. that certainly doesn't mean that we don't need to do a lot of thinking and considering of, you know, logical consequences, you know, rubbing one idea against another to get a third idea, um, the, you know, in the modern world to deal with the stresses of modern life. Um, yes. So I, th- I think there's a whole lot to be done to talk about, you know, so, so for example, so a list of you know, th- uh, four or five examples of, of things that were, you know, that I would, I would file in here. So what's the whole business with self-esteem? why did we why did that movement arise and you know there's no way that it can be entirely wrong there there just really actually isn't any way what's it responding to is it respond i you know maybe it's responding to a false understanding of humility i suspect that's what's going on um but right. you know to, to be humble means to you know ram yourself into the ground and there's you know and and obviously you know from you you know, they're talking about Teresa of or um uh, divine mercy sister uh, Faustina sister Yes, Faustina, uh,
0: sister Faustina
1: Paustina. um or or the, I mean, and those are just you know examples and and Faustina I think more so than Teresa of but a whole bunch of other you know whole bunch of other spiritual writing from the early modern period on through the 19th century into the into the 20th century of you know, emphasizing the point that God is everything, and I'm nothing in comparison to God. Um, yeah. Well, that's you know, you know, the weight of the word. You know, you if you keep repeating the word, you know, the phrase "I'm nothing" all the time. You know, I'm awful and my wretchedness and my well, compared to God, yeah, that's absolutely got to be the case. Um, right. but do you if you just sort of take that if you if you just sort of ramble off with that and say, well, I'm awful, yes, I'm hateful. You know I've conducted that experiment on myself without really meaning to um I don't I think, think a lot it of us works do. I don't think it i don't I don't think the New Testament demands that, and I think my own experience demands that i you know not take it that way um right. Right. you know and, you know go back to in comparison with because God is being itself um it would it would be hard to match up, and that's the whole point. My focus should be on God because God is so great rather okay. than you know because in, it's it's hard to to read you know you are awful, I am awful uh over and over again without actually comparing it to other human beings or other aspects of created reality or you know just expectations for you or constructing some set of expectations for yourself that you can't possibly. Live up to that can't be the point right. um, so, so you know so to, to, and to, to look at that from the, the viewpoint of psychology um as well you know what what actually happens when you when you conduct this experiment um, right you know and and the, you know the, that that of course leads off into all sorts of, of interesting concepts like you know your messages the things that you tell yourself negative tapes is a common yeah, common, yeah. You know, It'll decline you know as, as we get further and further away from uh, tape technology I'm sure but uh, <laughs> the being left of that phrase um you know what yeah what what I'm telling myself about myself you know monitor monitor its effect on yourself you know take a scientific approach to it what if I try right. thinking about the positive side more what if I take myself right. out of this situation Um, and choose to, you know, choose to immerse my mind in, in other things. Um, you know, and then the whole question, you know, so, um, without going into great detail about it, because, you know, (laughs) anonymity is one of the, is one of the traditions of 12-step spirituality, um, I'm involved in that, Mm. and I kind of have to be, uh, In terms of it's the only thing that's worked in my life to get me to the point where I could cope with life, you know, that I could get out of the the negative spiral that I was in. If I hadn't run across that back in 2010, um, if I hadn't Uh been directed to it in the confessional, as a matter of fact, um, I don't know where I'd be at this point. I, I, don't, wow. I don't I don't I don't really like to think about it. Maybe I should more actually because of you know in the sense of being grateful for what I've been given because my life is definitely different because of it. Um yeah, I mean and you know to, to introduce and this is something where, you know, the convergence of faith and science, let's let some of this come across the boundary from science into our faith. Check the results, you know? Right. <laughs> Look right. at what's actually happening in your life how you respond to different things and, and, you know, and by all means get perspective on it. Talk to other people. Talk to people outside your head and and try to get, you know, try to get some external fact-checking about, you know, the things that you believe. Bring the stuff out. Bring it out into the light and about it and check on it.
0: Yes, Yeah, it. Right. Uh, The uh, discovery of oneself, just as the discovery of other scientific truths, and the discovery of uh, religious truth it's really a, a, an act of uh, a discernment within community uh, it, it's to be figured out in conjunction with uh, the the wisdom of others the the action of the Holy Spirit indeed uh, uh, through others and indeed as we've talked about uh, uh, the action of uh, uh, past generations the uh, the wisdom uh, that we've been handed uh, Handed, uh from those uh people uh, the democracy of the dead as Chesterton says yeah, uh, so, yeah. yeah they, no, they, that's they, right it's, uh, past generation, can't stop seriously right
1: yeah. we
0: can't stop the thinking and we can't stop the collaborations yeah. with each other
1: yeah. yeah and and why did and again to get back to why did Christianity spread in the first place it, it spread in the first place because of because it had effects on people's lives that's I mean right. it's, it's own, powerful it's, it, yeah, its own testimony on its own behalf is that, you know, people started believing because they saw this guy curing blind people, curing sick people, curing crippled yeah, people. Yeah. And then they saw, despite their expectations, him after he had been killed, you know, appearing to them, letting them feel him and telling them that he had risen from the dead. And then they continue and then they went off and did these crazy things, right? Um, you know, and, you know, Saint Paul comes, you know, talks about did I, did we come to you? Did we just persuade you with a clever argument or you know, a sophistic argument? No, we came to you with power. <laughs> we came yeah. to you because stuff happened. You know, yeah. you, came, you came to believe because when we came among you, this stuff happened. And likewise, right. you know, so in my own life, the single most really persuasive argument for the existence of God that I have in my own life is that because I've started, you know, participating in this way of life and it definitely includes my Catholic life. It includes the sacraments. I mean, the 12 steps and, you know, you could, I could, you know, it's, it's been done. Maybe it could be done from a different perspective because I don't necessarily, (laughs) I'm reading Richard Rohr's book on the 12 steps. And again oh, you know, yeah. about talk about a name to bring up and you know immediately have a certain fraction of people start screaming at the uh, at the speaker but <laughs> um, for those of you who feel that way about Richard Rohr, I sympathize with you because the guy is a scold the guy of <laughs> doesn't have any humility he's got great truths <laughs> but he like you can read this whole book about this intensely intensely like everyone else I've ever heard read i mean What's, what's, you know, what the 12 steps start from AA and the AA big book is like the vast bulk of it is, you know, member story. This is how it worked in my life. This is how it worked yeah. in my life. This is how it worked yeah. in my life. Do I know how this right. worked in Richard Rohr's life? No, I don't get a single clue that he was anything other than this, you know, God's gift to humanity and a second coming. And, you know, to to clear up all of this crap that all of these goofy other people are doing wrong in their politics uh-huh. and in their personal lives, uh-huh. I'm not necessarily a tremendous fan. But nevertheless, really? I'm glad that I've read, what is it called? The Breathing Underwater is the name of the book. I actually uh-huh. have not about two-thirds of the way through it, and I've stalled out there. Breathing Underwater, Spirituality in the Twelve Steps. And I bring it up because of the positive aspect of it, that at least he's unapologetically pointing at it and saying the 12 steps and the Catholic way of life, hand in glove, absolutely hand in glove. I mean, you come into it, you know, a lot of people get really hung up on the fourth step. The fourth step is that you make a searching and fearless moral inventory. You know, so all those years of confession, I don't think it hurt. I don't, you know, did I learn more about it in the 12 step context? Yes. Yes. Yes, I think I, you know, I think I'm better at that than I used to be because of, you know, you know, learning. I mean, so, so I brought that back and I do my Catholic stuff, which is, you know, right, just right. another side of the same object, another, another, just another side of the elephant, not a separate entity. Um, right. But that, you know, but that made it e- and that made it easier, I think, than for a lot of people that I've you know, encountered in 12 in step contexts at the fourth and fifth step. Yeah. I mean and Another thing, to be fair, the fourth and fifth step could feed us back into Catholic spirituality is like, going to confession to a priest is not the only way we should confess our sins, and it's not what the New yeah, Testament yeah. limits us to. You know, I believe James chapter five, you know, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins, right, right. That doesn't just mean to a priest. There's a lot of value to a a 12-step meeting. What's a 12-step meeting? But getting together with a whole bunch of other people who have your problem and saying, this is the stuff that's going on in my head. This is the stuff that's going on in my life. And these are things that I did that didn't work. And, you know, and these are things that, you know, I feel regret for and I, I see the evil that it is that I'm doing that I'm participating in and I don't want to do it anymore. Um, right, right. There's tremendous value in that. And and I think okay, okay. the more Catholics that do that as well, not instead of, but as well to have that as, you know, a part of your life um, is very valuable and to have those relationships and I, and as part I, of your I, life. And then the, and then good God, the eighth the ninth and ninth step, Oh, my gosh, you mean I actually have to make some sort of amends? You mean I have to do, you know, you never use the word penance in the 12-step uh, context. But you have to do something about it. Yes, you're saved by a power greater than yourself. That's a second step. Um but You still have to make a response to the fact that you've been forgiven. It's not going to stick. You have to do something. You have to participate. Your participation is not is not the bigger part. It's the smaller part. But you still have to do it. That's just not how God's choosing to operate. That's not how exactly. he made us. I mean, God chooses to based on his knowledge of how we actually are, of how he actually made us. Um, God, yeah. made, God us
0: made us participants. As participants. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and, yes.
1: Yeah. Also, and, you're and,
0: reminding me of uh, Pope Benedict's uh, uh, um, teaching once that, uh, you know, modern, man, uh, modern mankind uh, learns not so much from teachers, but from witnesses, was, uh, that, oh, was that Benedict?
1: I thought that. Well, maybe, maybe both. Was I mean maybe Paul VI said it as well? I, I, I have been operating for a while under the assumption that Paul VI said that. But they well, don't write. Well, that's, thats the nice thing about these popes; they repeat each other. <laughs> the hermeneutics of v- the hermeneutics. consistency, or what was the term? I forget. I forget. Yeah, consistency, there's, 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 right? There's a meme going around that you know, instead of the hermeneutics of rupture, the hermeneutics of argh, I forget the term. Um, uh. <laughs> but you know, consistency uh, with the past, contin continuity, hermeneutics of continuity. I think that's I think that's a Benedict Indeed. phrase. Um, uh-huh. And of course, and of course, it has the the meme is like three photos of you know Pope John Paul II and Benedict. And Francis all like kneeling and praying, and you know, in the in, in the presence of an image of the Blessed Mother, or in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, or, or I forget um, what, but yeah.
0: I like it. Mm. Yeah. But so go uh, well. Um, in the spirit of that uh, uh, collaborative approach toward uh, uh, truth, um, shall we uh, uh, maybe start uh, uh, closing up the episode with just your thoughts about? Uh, where we go from here, because uh you've really uh outlined a good path uh, for us to uh, uh take in uh thinking more deeply about uh all of these things and handing uh letting them be handed on not only to us but to others in in conversation and in collaboration and in uh mutual discernment and so where do we go from here with that discernment
1: oh uh... Well, that's uh, that's still kind of up in the air. I actually have someone I want to contact yet today or or very soon. Um he's he's named Lucky Genka and I've read a couple of his. But he has he has some very short books on Amazon. Um yeah. he is a actually I think he was an engineer, electrical or mechanical engineer, chemical engineer, I'm not sure which. Um certainly with plenty of uh background in mathematics and and physics. And he talks about uh, he has he has a couple of of short books about let me see what I don't remember the titles right off the top of my head. Well, does the atom have a designer? I just finished that. Does the atom no. have a designer? Talk, just talking about wow. the the crazy amount of complexity that even a hydrogen atom has, because even amazing, even a proton yeah. by itself has has so much quantum mechanical detail going on just to keep a proton together, because that's three separate particles that are interchanging. You know these other particles that come in eight different flavors, and it's yeah, it's just and and all of the things that have to sort of go just right for matter to form and to you know form the whole periodic table of elements so that we can have chemistry, so that atoms can do the variety of things we need to have to have planets and life. Um, so so there's that, and then but he was he was apparently spurred to write these based on a um, you know the death of his son. And he, you know, was, was, um, yeah, the death of his like teenage son, I want to say. Um, and I, you know, actually the name was passed to me by his son-in-law who was, who runs a, uh, something called life hack bootcamp. Um, but that's, uh, yeah. So he, he's, he's about, you know, personal productivity and, and not spending, not spending time on things that don't deserve the time, uh, ultimately. Uh, how right. how to how to use your life more effectively but uh but yeah lockhe genka l a k i l a k h i g o e n k a um yeah so so i've i've read those i'd like to see if i can get him on um he actually actually i believe demir said that he was ill um it's conceivable he's passed away uh hopefully not so i would like to i'd like to reach out and contact him and talk to him uh sometime soon I hope to get uh Chris Baglow on the podcast at Notre Dame um, yeah because he works on uh uh bringing bringing knowledge and you know awareness of the Catholic tradition and you know knowledge about how there really are resolutions to a lot of these purported issues you know inconsistencies between science and religion to you know Catholic high school science teachers and things like and people in that in situations like that.
0: Yes, yeah, that's terrifically exciting work. Uh, really uh, teaching students how to think in interactive, uh, synergistic ways about science and religion, and uh, that's that's uh, empowering them to solve problems in their own lives. And it, it directly relates to psychology uh, and uh, learning about one's own uh, agency uh,
1: as a as a human being. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So and and so there and uh, so so we we've, we've laid out a lot of theory. You know, talking about the history of philosophy as a discipline, or psych, I'm sorry, psychology as a discipline. I, I want want to spend a few episodes on that. Um, probably not in the immediate future. I'd probably I'd like to get Damasio out and start uh, tangling with some of these contemporary neuroscience books um, here in in the near future. Um, so so we've laid out a, an arc and a, and a collection of issues on a lot of those. On a lot of, on, on multiple topics and, uh, you know, those are the points where we'll probably start. By the end of the year, uh, (laughs) topically for November of next year, I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, the interesting topic of, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about how to, uh, come up with a consistent understanding of Genesis and the physical world. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it's maybe, well, and of course, the, the beautiful thing about it is, is that since we don't actually know how the world is going to end, you know, we don't have we don't have observational data on how the world is going to end, um, we at least have a, a few more degrees of freedom trying to understand what the book of Revelation is telling us about how human life, potentially existence, is going to end, or, you know, of course, the New Testament in general. Because, um, of course, how is that going to play out, you know? You look at the imagery in the Gospels and in the book of Genesis. um, Well, if Jesus is going to appear in the sky, maybe that's figurative, um, Mm -hmm. what if there are human colonies on other planets? How's that going to work out? (laughs) Is he going to appear all those places at once? Well, Balky, he's divine, so I don't know why he couldn't, but uh, maybe there's other (laughs) ways. So just a little bit of the fun sort of speculation. Just knowing that that question is out there and thinking about, well, how would that play out? But, you know, what what are the alternatives anyway? Right. Is, yeah, is those things universe, are
0: certainly deserve
1: fun. Is the whole universe going to end? Is that actually what the sacred book is talking about, or is it just going to be human existence, or 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 what? I mean, that's uh, that that's something that uh, has has uh, occupied my mind from time to time for for a very long time. So I'd like to probably close out the year, or at least close out the liturgical year next year. Uh, talking about that just a little bit at least one episode there
0: yeah and that's uh, that's a that's fruitful uh, a fruitful goal for the podcast because uh, in the spirit of that science and religion initiative uh that uh, chris baglow heads, uh no one can doubt that high school students and young people and indeed all people are fascinated with the uh idea ideas about um uh, uh, maybe not so explicitly the end of the world, but boy, they eat up all the fiction and all of the movies and uh, oh, all ideas. Oh, the apocalyptic, about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. zombie apocalypse and everything. What? How can we make better sense out of that? About uh, thinking, thinking about it through science and religion.
1: Yeah, why people are so encouraged to think about that? I mean, yeah, I almost yeah. think it's it's in some very strange sense, more comfortable to think about, you know, everything ending and, um, you know, us being knocked back to a, you know, pre-modern or, um, or even pre-civilization state of existence, because at least we can sort of wrap our heads around what that might be like, as opposed to just right, trying right. to consider what, what's going to happen as our technology continues to pro- proliferate and, you know, Develop even stranger potentials, um, right? Because it it gets even hard, ever harder to even imagine. Well, what's going to change next? And yeah. that's 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 a human weakness is is the inability to deal with the fact that obviously we don't know. <laughs> Either exactly. we refuse to think about it at all, or we can const- or we construct some sort of oversimplified you know mask that we can put over it so we don't have to think about it anymore. That's right.
0: That's what happens too often. So our so our podcasts can be viewed as a good antidote to those uh less constructive tendencies and uh a, a promotion of the more constructive uh tendency toward uh, thinking uh more ongoingly and more comprehensively.
1: Would that be a good right, well, Yeah. Well, we managed to uh, we managed to put together a couple, you know, the uh, our one twenty minute episode has probably turned into two forty minute episodes by now.
0: <laughs> That's what happens with podcasts.
1: That's what happens. That's what happens. Um, I'll have to decide whether I need to break this off into episode forty three as well. I, I, I think not. I don't think I want to string it out that long. I'd rather uh, get back to getting you uh, uh, some uh, some more some more uh, topical uh, some some more focused content. But, uh, it's the beginning of a year. It's the beginning of the year, and it's good to cast the net a little bit widely so that you don't, uh, aim too low as well. So.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Well, I, mm-hmm. I thank you as
1: always. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's always great to talk to you, Bill. And, uh, it's always fun to do this and put it out for you all to listen to. And, uh, we hope you enjoy it. Give us feedback. Okay. Uh, we're, we're at, right. uh.
0: Check out the liner notes, all right?
1: Yeah, it's at, uh, you can find, you can find it, obviously you can Google that's so second millennium and, uh, you will find, uh, either the Podbean site or you will find actually my WordPress site. Um, you can, uh, that's actually at the moment it's going out to my, uh, business website paggeology.net which I only mention because people are actually finding it <laughs> on WordPress. Excellent. Easier than they're finding it on Podbean? Hmm, that's, uh, something I would, uh, uh, like to not necessarily happen that way but the the internet works the way that it works. You can find us on Twitter. The episodes go out to Twitter. Uh, They they are shared to our Facebook page uh, so you can get a hold of us any of those ways and uh, comment. Uh, We would love to hear ideas that you have for episodes. Um, By all means write to us with that and uh, any kind of feedback you want about uh, anything you'd like to see changed or added, we'd love to hear it. So
0: And listeners, also, please uh, help spread the word of the existence of the uh, podcast uh, and tell them that you're enjoying listening to it and thinking along with it.
1: Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, until next time, thanks for listening. More thinking to come. (laughs) More thinking to come.